Welcome to Talks at Advent, homilies and reflections given at the Church of the Advent, a Western Rite Orthodox mission in Atlanta, Georgia. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost, God is one. We hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal and that they are endowed by their Creator with certain unalienable rights. That among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, penned Thomas Jefferson in the famous phrase from the second paragraph of the first article of the Declaration of Independence, adopted tomorrow, July 4th, 248 years ago. The exact meaning of these words and their origin remains a point of debate to this day, but no matter how you look at it, independence, liberty, life, and pursuit of happiness are core principles of the founding of our country. And in the past couple of weeks, many aspects of independence, life, and liberty have been in the news, perhaps most pointedly in the overturning of Roe v. Wade by the Supreme Court in the Dobbs versus Jackson Women's Health Organization decision. On one side are mostly well-meaning people who claim the decision has stripped them of a fundamental right to their independence, liberty, life, and pursuit of happiness. And on the other are mostly well-meaning people who claim that the decision has restored a right to independence, liberty, life, and the pursuit of happiness to another human being who previously had said rights denied. As Orthodox Christians, how are we to look at this situation? Of course, I'm not talking about whether we as Orthodox Christians consider abortion a sin. On that, our church teaching is clear and unequivocal. In fact, being anti-abortion has been a defining feature of Christians since apostolic times, although you might doubt that given some of our Christian brothers and sisters' comments on this. But indeed, on June 19th this year, the Assembly of Canonical Orthodox Bishops of the United States of America, of whom our Metropolitan Joseph is a member, issued a comprehensive statement on the sacredness of human life and its untimely termination. Now, this statement didn't just apply to abortion, but to other critical topics such as suicide or capital punishment. I'm obviously not going to read it all now, but I hope after the service today, sometime this week, you'll find it and read it. But for now, I'm going to give you a few highlights. The sacredness of life is shared with all creatures and creation fashioned and brought into existence by our mutual creator. From single-celled organisms, to plants, reptiles, to birds, to, or mice, to elephants, all are created and thus sacred. God saw all that he had made and it was very good. As such, it is our responsibility as human beings to treat all life accordingly with care, reverence, humility, and love. The recognition of each human person as created in the image and likeness of God destined for eternal life and therefore sacred and inviolable is a cornerstone of Christianity. Through the church canons, dogma, and moral code across the centuries, we have affirmed this understanding of human life from the womb to the tomb. On abortion, they say, our salvation begins with a conception. The mother of God's miraculous conception of her son and our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, marks the beginning of new life and hope in the world. As we sing in the troparion that celebrates the Annunciation, today is the beginning of our salvation, the revelation of the eternal mystery. 
They continue, therefore, human life in its earliest manifestations in the womb is sacred and inviolable. Any act to terminate life in the womb, whether by aborted medications, medical procedures, or destructive behavior, denies this truth, is considered murder, and risks terrible spiritual consequences for those involved. But they go on to say, as with any instance of sin, mercy and healing, not retribution and punishment, are the way of the Lord. The church is called to minister to those seeking abortions, those who have had them, or those who have been forced to have abortions, and those who have performed abortions, knowing that abortions are often sought because of poverty, abuse, coercion, neglect, despair, or the influence of a life-denying ethos that has become a societal norm. Church-sponsored and other programs that provide spiritual, physical, psychological, and financial support to expectant single mothers and couples in situations in which abortion is being considered and to young families in need of extra care should be vigorously supported by the church and the faithful. And also so that you know, with respect to some of the remarkably restrictive laws that are being proposed, this in the statement as well. Quote, the Assembly of Bishops has previously acknowledged that there are rare but serious medical instances where mother and child may require extraordinary actions. But again, my, my goal today is not to discuss abortion per se, but an orthodox Christian understanding of independence, life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. And that brings me to our gospel reading today. We hear about three people invited to what I can only imagine was an incredibly sumptuous banquet at the king's palace. And while it's not explicitly stated, these folks had not only been invited, but they had already accepted the invitation, just like we would RSVP to an important event like a wedding today. The servant hadn't just shown up at their house and said, hey, we got some burgers on the grill, want to join us? No. In each case, this is not a spur-of-the-moment decision by these men, but something premeditated. They know that they have already agreed to do this. They know that they are backing out of a commitment that they had already made. Now, perhaps an illness, especially one that was communicable, or something else would pass the muster as a reason not to come. But do these excuses meet the bar? Let's examine the first man's excuse. A little context is needed. After all, he bought the land. Surely, hadn't he already checked it out? Well. It doesn't turn out that that's probably the case. In biblical times under Levitical law, land was never sold permanently. And every 50 years, there was a jubilee year where all debts were forgiven. And in, as part of the year of the jubilee, all land reverted back to the family of its original inheritor at the time of Joshua. So the value of land was simply determined by how many more years there were until the next jubilee year. Nevertheless, is there really a reason for him not to delay going to see this land for a little while to make good on his commitment. Same with a man who's going to prove his oxen. And last of all, we have a man who has perhaps the most legitimate excuse of all because his excuse was guaranteed to him by Jewish law. In Deuteronomy, it states, when a man is newly married, he shall not go out with the army, neither shall any kind of business be imposed upon him. He shall be free at home one year to be happy with his wife whom he has taken. However, even though his excuse is legitimate, since no one could require him to go to the banquet, he's actually the freest of all three to actually attend the banquet, since no one could impose on him anything else. And I think the point here is that although this man has the most legitimate excuse of all, he also has the lamest excuse of them all. He has no commitments that can be imposed on him, including this one 
and yet he takes his freedom to such an extent that he refuses to enjoy the great honor of being invited to the king's banquet, and he doesn't respect his prior commitment sufficiently to do what he's already committed to do, even when by law he has no other cares in the world. My brothers and sisters, this parable speaks volumes to us on independence, life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Each of these three men are wrongly applying their independence, their liberty, their life, and pursuit of happiness. They have free will, yes. And that same statement of the Assembly of Bishops I referenced earlier states that free will is a gift from God to be cherished and respected as part of human life. But in the parable, again, these men use that free will wrongly. They fail to see the interconnection to the king who invited them and how their actions have negative consequences. They're self-centered, focused only on their own needs. And while, as we see, the king can get on without them, he's upset about their actions. They think they're free, and they think they're happier for it. But what is clear from the parable is that they're missing out. By exerting their will, they are suffering and making others suffer. By pursuing only personal happiness, they are making others sad and angry. No matter how independent we think our lives are or wish they were, we are interdependent. No man is an island, as John Donne famously preached. And as I like to say, we as Christians should not anthropomorphize God. That is, interpret God from the sense that he's somehow human. Rather, we need to theomorphize people. We instead need to understand humankind from what we know about God. And what do we know about God? We know that God is an interdependent, perfectly loving trinity of persons so perfect that they, despite being three, are still one. Is that what we can say about the three men in this story? Is that what we can say about ourselves? Are we selfish? Of course we are. We're fallen human beings. Do we recognize our connection to others? All too often, no. But at the same time, we're not, we may be interdependent, but we are not to be some sort of codependence. Again, our theology points to an interdependence, a way that we are both unique, independent, and yet still need one another. And that's who the king invites, the poor, who need help providing for their material needs, and the maimed, the halt, and the blind, who need help providing for their various physical needs. All of these people also had free will. They could have refused the invitation, but they didn't. Why? Because they recognized their interdependence on others. They recognized, perhaps, that the good order and peace that the king established was instrumental to their ability to survive through the good of others. Those who refused to come didn't recognize the same. They thought they were self-sufficient, after all, they had a field and an oxen to plow and grow their own food, or in the case of the third, a help me. And yet they were wrong. They still depend on others, but they don't see it. In fact, they were the real poor, the real maimed, the real halt, the real blind. I think it was uh, Revelation today, three, it is where uh, the letter is going out to the church at Laodicea. And it says basically the same thing. It says, you, you say, I'm rich, I've prospered, and I need nothing, not knowing that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. 
Therefore, I counsel you to buy from me gold refined by fire, that you may be rich with white and white garments to clothe you and to keep the shame of your nakedness from being seen, and salve to anoint your eyes that you may see. They thought they had it all and were in control of everything, but instead they were empty, unable to move freely and spiritually blind, just like the Laodiceans. But this turns me to our epistle for today. I think the last few weeks we all know have been full of vitriol, and I hope you haven't participated in it, because hate is also not our way. As I said in the beginning of this sermon, good and well-meaning people on both sides have different thoughts on what we think is obvious, and we cannot under any circumstance express ourselves about it in anger. We may not understand their perspective. We have to remain loving, for St. John tells us if we love not, we abide in death. And that if we hate our brother, we are a murderer. We merely hate some of our fellow human beings for whatever reason, maybe because someone is in fact a murderer themselves, someone who is specifically and obviously deprived the right of life to another, or maybe we hate them for the much more simple reason that we don't agree with the way they live their life or the way they apply their free will. It's not for us to cut them off from the love of God. Instead, so we're called to sacrifice to lay down our lives for them because God has laid down his life for us. And as the epistle concludes, but whoso hath this world's good, that's you brothers and sisters in Christ, and seeth his brother have need, that's everyone around us, and shutteth up his bowels of compassion from him, because we spew hate, because we think they don't like us, we don't like them. Then St. John asks, how dwells the love of God? in us. How so? How does the love of God dwell in me, in you, when we act like that? It doesn't. So let us love, not in word, nor in tongue, but in deed and in truth. Because we know we are of the truth, because we know we are of God. My brothers and sisters, if we are to understand as Christians what it means to be free on this Independence Day weekend, we must identify more with the poor, the maimed, the halt, and the blind, and stop trying to convince others that we're free by exerting our will. We must instead show how free we are by freely bending our will to that of others. It may seem counterintuitive, counterintuitive, but this is the very path that our Lord himself shows us. Our God, who had everything, who created everything, shows true freedom by submitting himself to his own creation. Becoming a person, a man, in a specific time and place, he submits himself to the will of his parents, Mary and Joseph. He submits himself to the law. He submits himself to a painful and shameful death at the hands of men. That, my brothers and sisters, that is true Christian freedom. Having the freedom to do whatever you want, and you have it, and choosing freely to submit to God and neighbor. Sacrifice is the mark of true independence, the mark of true interdependence. And we, by the grace of God, have been given the strength to do what our Lord has showed us to be the way. The cross is the independence, the liberty, the life, and the pursuit of happiness that we as Orthodox Christians are called on this American Day of Independence and every day. Amen. Talks at Advent, homilies and reflections given at the Church of the Advent a Western Rite Orthodox mission in Atlanta, Georgia.